Support for AHLA comes from Axon, which brings unmatched depth and the skills needed to address healthcare collaboration and competition. They are one of the best-known antitrust firms in the world, with more than 60 full-time competition lawyers. They represent companies across the healthcare universe and help clients avoid antitrust landmines, complete mission-critical deals, and protect their interests in litigation and investigations. For more information, visit axon.com. First, uh, I would like to thank the AHLA for putting on this podcast and inviting us to participate. Uh, A few weeks ago, the AHLA hosted its annual Healthcare Transactions Conference in Nashville. And unsurprisingly, antitrust was a very hot topic of conversation. Our goal today is to touch on some of the antitrust highlights and key takeaways from the conference. Uh, Today, I am joined by two very distinguished guests who I will let introduce themselves uh, to kick things off. I'm Peter Herrick. I'm a partner in the New York office of Axum, Beltrop, and Harkrider, where I focus primarily on antitrust deal work and litigation with an emphasis on healthcare. Uh, Before going into private practice, I was senior trial counsel at the FTC and a staff attorney in the Mergers 4 Division, uh, which is the group that typically uh, reviews healthcare provider mergers. Uh, I'll also be pulling double duty today, uh, emceeing the discussion and hopefully contributing a little bit uh, as well. Uh, Susan and Chris, uh, can you introduce yourselves? Sure, I'll, I'll start. Um, hello, everyone. I'm Subhu Ramanarayanan. Uh, I am an antitrust economist. I work at NERA Economic Consulting. I chair NERA's healthcare antitrust practice. Um, a lot of my work focuses on um, economic analysis of healthcare transactions, particularly provider transactions. Um, and then on, on top of that, I do some work on healthcare and trust issues on the litigation side as well. Um, um, so thanks to Pete and you know, Chris for inviting me to be part of this podcast. I'm uh, looking forward to participating. Thanks, Hubu. I'm Chris White, and I'm a vice president in the Office of Legal Affairs here at Northwell Health, where I also serve as secretary and general counsel for the Northwell Health ACO, the Cancer Institute, and a couple of our other subsidiary entities. Additionally, I'm a member of the board of directors of the American Health Lawyers Association, and it's really a pleasure to be here today. I've followed antitrust for a long time since starting as an antitrust attorney at the Federal Trade Commission many decades ago. So um, I appreciate being here today and any opinions I may offer are solely my own. Thank you. Thanks, Chris and Subu. And I should add that uh, the same goes for me. Uh, Any opinions I express are my own. Um, So uh, there's a lot of ground we could cover. Um, I think I would like to start in Rhode Island, uh, which is a state that had a recent deal involving Lifespan and Care in New England. Uh, and during the conference, we heard from Stephen Provaza in the Rhode Island Attorney General's office uh, about that deal. Uh, the deal was challenged after a long investigation, uh, challenged by both the FTC and the Rhode Island AG. Uh, and ultimately, after the complaint was filed, the parties abandoned the transaction. Um, so I'm going to put Subu on the spot here a little bit. Um, I, I'm interested, Subu, you know, if, if you could give us your thoughts on some important takeaways from that deal. And, and don't worry, Chris, I'm, I'm not going to leave you out. 
<laughs> sure, happy to start. Um, so I think there were a couple of things which stood out to me as an outsider. So, you know, looking at uh, the way the, uh, the complaint was structured by the FTC as well as the Rhode Island AG's office. First, it was clear that you know, there was a, a thorough independent investigation carried out by the Rhode Island AG, who seemed to have their own expert, economic expert, who undertook a fairly detailed analysis um, uh, looking at the potential antitrust issues, um, in addition to you know, whatever analysis and economists presumably the FPC was using and relying on. So that to me sort of stood out as to just the the depth and the depth of the analysis and the investigation that was undertaken by the Attorney General's office. Um, I think that in itself was, was noteworthy for me, again, as an observer. Um, then coming to the substance itself, um, I think there, there were a couple of um, areas that, that stood out uh, in you know, the discussion, in the complaint, as well as uh, in the Rhode Island AG's presentation about you know, their uh, views and analysis of this matter. I think one was, uh, you know, if you look at the, the way the FTC brought the complaint, the focus was on you know, inpatient general acute care services as you know, the set of services that were of concern. Um, the AG uh, and you know, their expert and their office focused on a much broader set of services. So it was not just inpatient care, it was uh, behavioral health, it was uh, you know, a lot of outpatient surgical services. So just the set of services that were considered uh, as part of the analysis and as part of the complaint, that was something which was noteworthy from a substance point of view for me. Um, I think the other aspect of it was also the focus on labor markets. So uh, here, uh, you know, the Rhode Island AG uh, in their discussion focused on uh, their concerns about how this transaction could impact uh, or could adversely impact the market for labor when it comes to registered nurses, um, you know, how it might, you know, depress employment or um, uh, compensation for, for, the, for these workers. Um, now, the FTC itself did not, uh, you know, uh, uh, bring a cause of action centered around labor market issues. There was this interesting divide between the commissioners um, and I'm sure you know, Chris will have more to say about it, um, but it was clear that you know, labor market issues, it is becoming clearer that such issues are going to be of, going to be, you know, of a lot of interest going forward as well. And it was clearly, you know, a key area of concern here, both for the AG's office as well as for the FTC from the looks of it. Thanks, Uber. Chris, any, any thoughts? I know this is an area uh, near and dear to your, uh, your client. Yes, near and dear to me as a native Rhode Islander as well. <laughs> um, and I, I just want to add a plug. If um, there are folks who have not heard Stephen Provaza's keynote from the transaction program, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the recording. He His presentation was really substantive, really informative, and I think it's worth listening to firsthand. <clears throat> but to follow up on some of um, Subu's excellent comments um, in terms of, for example, the, the depth and the substance of the state of Rhode Island's antitrust investigation, one thing that Mr. Pravaza um, underscored is that 
states like Rhode Island are requiring the transaction parties to pay for the state to retain outside experts, law firms, economists, financial consultants, healthcare consultants. So they're getting a lot of assistance in the review. And of course, the transaction parties are paying for this. So that's just something that parties should know going into the transaction. Additionally, in terms of the substantive review, Subu did a great job of outlining the ways in which the state of Rhode Island explored some more innovative or different markets than what we've seen coming out of the FTC historically. Uh, Stephen Pravaza, I think, did a pretty good job of explaining that as the state AGs have been devoting more and more resources to healthcare and healthcare transactions, they're getting more interested in the area. And it means that they're willing to um, scrutinize markets, I think, more broadly and, and somewhat more creatively. He made the point that on the one hand, the state AG's office worked very closely with the FTC and they were very collaborative. On the other hand, I think he felt that the AG's office was fairly independent. Um, and that is part of what led to their identifying four markets that were not identified in the FTC's complaint. And then finally, I just wanted to comment in terms of the um, labor markets where the Rhode Island AG put a lot of time and attention. And of course, FTC Chair Khan and Commissioner Slaughter issued a separate statement indicating that they would have supported a labor market allocation if they felt that the other commissioners would have supported that vote. I think there's an expectation that with the new commissioner, Commissioner Bedoya, labor markets will be increasingly important in healthcare transactions going forward. So that's something to watch for. Yeah, and I, I agree 100% um, with, with um, both of your comments. I, I think one of the things that jumped out at me uh, picking up on um, Chris's observation is that you know, uh, Stephen was very clear about his belief that states can and will continue to chart their own course on healthcare transactions. Um, and not all states will be the same. Uh, each state will have its own idiosyncratic rules. They will have their own um, areas of focus and interest. Uh, so it, it will not be a one size fits all, but you know, it'd be very important for uh, practitioners advising emerging um, parties to take this into account. Um, it's not just the FTC that you have to think about. Uh, each state could have its own interest in, in your deal. Um, and some states, as we've seen, are pretty aggressive uh, when it comes to enforcement. Another thing that, that I thought was um, very interesting and you don't typically see with the FTC is a focus on non-commercial markets uh, by, the, uh, by the Rhode Island AG, the Medicare and Medicaid. That is um, you know, pretty much outside the playbook of the FTC. The FTC usually focuses on loss of bargaining leverage between, on the one hand, emerging parties and, or you know, a change in bargaining leverage between, on the one hand, the emerging parties and on the other hand, commercial payers. Uh, but Rhode Island was focused on a loss of quality competition, which could affect Medicare patients. Uh, so I thought that was quite interesting. Um, 
The last thing that he mentioned that I thought was important for merging parties to keep in mind is more, it seems more ministerial, but it could be important, is that a state might not have the same confidentiality protections that the FTC employs. Uh, so you really do want to look at that um, because needless to say, you don't want your um, trade secrets or you know very confidential information out in the public eye. So just some things to keep in mind uh, for, for all the practitioners out there who are thinking about, you know, how do I approach a deal that where a state AG could be really interested uh, in the transaction. And I think that segues uh, nicely into a second topic that um, we wanted to talk about today, which are some of the new antitrust theories that uh, have been talked about and in the case of uh, um, Karen New England uh, were actually alleged by, um, well, almost alleged, I guess you could say, by uh, the FTC. Uh, and, you know, the panel on new antitrust theories covered a variety of new and challenging issues um, as the antitrust agencies uh, look to expand the kinds of topics and, and areas that are investigating. Um, since that was Chris's panel, um, I'm going to give her a little bit of a break. Um, uh, and so my next question is going to really start with Subu. Is, and, you know, as an economist, um, where do you see the biggest challenges for, for emerging parties in light of the new antitrust theories that, that we hear so much about labor markets you mentioned? but also cross market effects and, and other sort of hot topics uh, for the antitrust agencies? Sure. Um, I think working with a lot of, you know, merging parties on these transactions and, you know, engaging with the agencies, both federal and state agencies, I think there are a couple of, you know, challenges when we think about uh, you know, for parties considering a deal in the context of these sort of new antitrust theories. I think the first is just this sort of shift in focus to not, what I would say are more non-traditional theories. In, I mean, some of these theories have been, you know, around for a while, um, but some of these are gaining more prominence now. Um, and so these would include things like, you know, focus on labor markets, for example, you know, is there a harm in competition on the, on, you know, on the labor side? Um, so that's sort of one stream of or one type of theory that is getting more focus. Um, it has been examined in the past on occasion in healthcare transactions, but it's certainly risen to a new level of prominence now. Um, a second type of theory is what are called cross-market effects. These are, you know, types of uh, transactions where even if you have two merging, you know, health systems not serving patients in the same geography, uh, is there a theory of harm that could still arise when these two health systems are contemplating a transaction? So um, that's, um, again, this is a fairly... I would say it's a fairly new theory of harm that's you know, gaining prominence. Uh, and then of course, there are other types of issues that may come up in more complex transactions, you know, like vertical transactions, for example, if you have a hospital buying a physician practice or an insurer aligning with a hospital, what, how are you know, such transactions you know, evaluated? So there are a lot of these sort of non-traditional theories of harm, meaning uh, 
focused on non-horizontal effects, which uh, are increasingly coming up as part of you know, these, these transaction reviews. Um, I think in terms of what challenges they bring up, I think one is sometimes it's hard to you know, um, gauge and judge in advance what types of concerns could a transaction give rise to? So just being aware of, you know, here are the types of concerns that, you know, we need to be looking out for that the, that the agencies may have that we would need to prepare to address as what that universe is. I think that in itself, there is a little bit of uncertainty about as the scope of the agency's antitrust review seems to be getting more expansive than it used to be in the past. Um, and based on you know recent comments received from the agencies, it is definitely getting even more so. So I think that's sort of one flavor of the challenge that I think merging parties face um, in trying to um, you know, plan for these transactions. I think a second is thinking about the different types of enforcers. I mean, uh, I think both Chris and, and you, Pete, brought this up earlier. Um, we're seeing some of this coming out of the FTC, but you know, in many cases, the states are leading the charge, particularly when it comes to these non-traditional theories or these newer theories. So we talked about you know, labor markets in the context of Rhode Island, um, but if you, uh, if you look at California, that's another example of a state that um, you know, is leading the charge on, uh, say, cross-market effects. Uh, with you know with uh, the, the transaction between Cedar Sinai and Huntington Hospital, which was last year, uh, the FTC did not challenge that transaction, but the state of California required some conditions uh, as a precursor for that transaction to close on the basis that you know that transaction will otherwise harm competition based on a cross-market theory. So it's not just the FTC we need to be thinking about in the context of these non-traditional theories, but it's also the state enforcers. And finally, I think the challenge that you know, we as practitioners face and translates a little bit to emerging parties as well in dealing with these theories is because these some of these theories like cross-market effects, for example, are more nascent, newer, it's harder to, you know, there are no readily available screens. So it's harder to come up with, you know, or to say concretely, you know, here's, uh, or to, uh, to come up with concrete measures that say, you know, here's the extent of concern in these. So certainly there's some work that we can do to say, you know, whether there may be a concern here or not, but because uh, of, you know, the lack of, of precedent, lack, uh, frankly, even the lack of literature on some of these, the the screens and the thresholds are a little fuzzier. So I think that those are some of the challenges that I see as a practitioner in dealing with these non-traditional theories. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point, uh, Chris. Uh, did you have any thoughts on on the issues that Subur raised, um, particularly coming from the perspective of you know somebody who's in house, and you know how do you advise your client on, on how to handle these kinds of issues? That's a great question. And following up on Subu's comments, I think that parties that are planning their transactions need to anticipate that as the agencies are doing these more comprehensive reviews that Subu described, um, sometimes it's called the holistic merger review, taking into account the non-price concerns about a potential transaction, I think parties have to anticipate that that review is going to take the agency staff longer a time 
to do. Um, they don't have the tools that they have in the context of price effects. Um, so they need to develop the tools. They need to do, um, I think, a, a broader uh, review of data and information. So it's going to take staff longer. It also means it's going to be uh, more intensive and burdensome on the parties who may be asked to produce a lot more data and information outside of what we have seen historically in a second um, request context. So I, I've heard that merging health systems have been asked questions in the uh, second request process about things like their uh, environmental practices or waste management management practices. Also relating to governance issues or um, privacy data security issues and, and of course the labor issues. So you start to see that it's a pretty broad array of um, substantive issues that are being explored. And certainly it's going to take more time. And I think it's really hard to predict where a particular investigation is going to go. So that injects the whole process with a new layer of uncertainty. Um, it also raises some tough questions that I think Lona Fowder, who is another economist and a member of the antitrust practice group, she did a great job of addressing in her presentation as to how do you balance these competing interests. You could have a transaction that has some really positive benefits from a environmental waste management perspective, but maybe it's got some more challenging issues around data, privacy, security. So which issue trumps? Um, so it's it's really a whole new world of inquiry, um, I think, particularly at the FTC. Um, and I don't know exactly what guidance, Pete, to give uh, the parties doing the transaction planning, other than to have some really good conversations with your outside counsel um, and maintain as uh, open a line of communication as you possibly can have on any potential sort of skeletons in the closet or weak links in either of the merging parties' performance on, on ESG type issues. Yeah, I think I, that's a great point. And I think one of the real challenges for merging parties is this sort of uncertainty around what are the agencies really going to focus on? Subu mentioned screening, you know, measures, and traditionally, one might look at the shares and try to estimate uh, HHIs, which for practitioners out there who aren't antitrust folks, it's really just a measure of market concentration, and those would give you a sense, at least, of whether or not the agencies might want to take a close look at the deal. Um, those would still potentially uh, help you determine if the agencies would be interested, but they're not exclusive necessarily. Um, and you know, one other area that I think is quite interesting, and and I think traditionally has fallen into the realm of states more than the FTC, is how transactions will impact underserved communities. Um, and oftentimes this is part of what transacting parties think about is, you know, charity care or the ability to bring higher quality care to rural hospitals, you know, that, that are being acquired by a larger system. Um, but Chris, to your point, how do you balance that? What is the, you know, how much weight do you give something like that versus, uh, you know, potential labor market concern versus, you know, a loss of negotiating leverage versus a vertical uh, issue. It's, it's really, uh, it, it does create sort of a, a broth of issues that you have to contend with. And I think, um, you know, what, what I've been trying to advise my clients is 
is that you really do have to think about each of these issues independently and in combination with each other when you're thinking about how you're going to present your deal to the FTC or the state AG, you know, as the case may be. So, you know, it's better to be prepared uh, in advance, but that doesn't mean every issue that you think about is going to be the one they focus on, um, which I think segues into, uh, you know, something that's come up very recently in the last few days, which are two new merger challenges by the FTC, one in Utah and one in, in New Jersey. And contrary, I think perhaps to many folks' expectations, these didn't include any of these non-traditional theories of harm. Um, so what are we to make of that? Is this all much ado about nothing? Yeah, I mean, those, it's an interesting question, Pete. I think certainly the FTC has, you know, in these two new complaints, uh, two new challenges that they've brought, again, just going by the complaints which are, which are public, um, they seem to have stuck to their, you know, their traditional playbook of bringing challenges in these hospital transactions, focusing on, um, you know, the closeness of competition between the parties, the market concentration uh, measures, the the loss, the increase in negotiating leverage against commercial insurers, um, and not really, you know, straight into these other non-traditional theories. I think part of it may just have to do with um, you know, going back to the discussion in, in uh, Care New England in Rhode Island, where there was a split between the commissioners as to whether or not it made sense for them, or whether or not they ought to be bringing a, an allegation based on a labor market theory of harm or not, in conjunction with you know what they were alleging on the acute care side, uh, I think um, I don't know the specifics of you know what may have gone on behind the scenes, but one consideration when the FTC brings these cases is um, to the extent you know if you are adding on multiple markets, it requires um, a, you know a demonstration of, of harm in each of these multiple markets, and for you to think about a mechanism in each of these multiple markets. Um, they may have chosen to, you know, focus their complaints, their allegations on the theories of harm, um, which they felt were the strongest as, as well as, you know, which were adequate to clear the bar. So maybe that was some sort of consideration like that, which went on behind the scenes. Um, unless, of course, it's also possible that these transactions did not raise any concerns along those lines um, as outsiders, uh, or at least as an outsider myself. Uh, it's not quite clear to me uh, as to what was the um, the calculus behind that. But it was interesting to see that the complaint itself, you know, hewed to their their traditional, the FTC's traditional playbook of, of uh, you know, hospital monitor challenges. I, I agree. I think Supo's points are excellent. And it's going to be some time before we know whether this was more a question of litigation strategy and, and resource allocation, um, or simply that other issues weren't raised by these transactions. I think one of the challenges that FTC must be sensitive to is just a lack of case law precedent on some of these issues. Um, and, and that raises some bigger issues. On the one hand, obviously, the FTC wants to be out there winning cases and, and blocking deals that they feel to be anti-competitive and using their strongest strategy to do so as efficiently as possible. On the other hand, it does raise a question of 
uh, what's the lasting impact of all the work that's gone into developing the holistic merger review. And if you're not litigating, um, it becomes very academic. Um, and, and that just raises some really interesting questions that I think we're going to have to keep watching and observing to see where the agency comes out. You know, it's a great point. And it does, it does raise the question of, you know, if the FTC ultimately is not going to bring cases on these theories, you know, is it a tax on mergers that, um, you know, it's just a cost that these parties are going to have to bear and it's ultimately not going to go anywhere. Um, I, I think it's premature <laughs> to really draw any conclusions for sure. But um, yeah, it's an area to watch. Uh, and and um, I, I don't think it's the last we've heard of cross-market effects or, or labor markets, uh, um, to be sure. So um, to, just to shift gears a little bit further, you know, one of the other panels that was one of the you know, great panels was uh, focused on changes to the FTC review process on deals. And, um, you know, that panel was practical considerations in a new antitrust world, world which I highly recommend if, if you can um, go listen to the, the recording or uh, just check out the slides on, online. Um, it, it covered a range of changes to the FTC review process um, and the implications of those. Uh, I am going to direct this first to Chris. Uh, you know, as an in-house lawyer thinking about how do you advise your, your internal client, you know, what developments do you really need to make sure they're aware of on a sort of logistical, practical side um, before they get into a deal uh, that might be reviewed by the FTC? Thanks. Great question. For me, a lot of times I think it really boils down to um, how are you planning your transaction? What's the timing? And how do you make sure that you're as prepared as possible to meet whatever timing you're hoping to meet? Um, and that ties, of course, to some of the merger review process change that you're, you're talking about, because some of those merger review process changes inject some more uncertainty into the process. Um, I think all of them generally impose more burdens on the merging parties, and it's important to understand what they are so that you can prepare for them and arrange your timing around it. Um, some of the um, substantive issues that we discussed around holistic merger review are obviously gonna have some, some timing implications. We touched on that. But the actual merger review process is also changing under Chairman Khan's um, jurisdiction. Um, one of the most important changes is that the FTC is now putting the burden on the parties to come forward with more information about their operations and um, their structures before the FTC staff will negotiate the second request. Um, so that just means that um, the process is going to be more intense at the beginning and potentially a little bit slower than it had been historically. And I, I think the FTC has recognized that that may be an impact. Relatedly, the parties um, have some additional other burdens like submitting complete privilege logs where historically parties were permitted to submit more partial logs. Um, because some of these activities are slowing down the merger review process, the, the FTC has adopted a practice of issuing these close at your own risk letters um, where they, the agency may not have time to review a particular transaction or complete the merger review um, prior to the expiration of the HSR 
uh, waiting periods. And in those cases, parties are getting letters that basically put them on notice that the FTC may come back and either resume or um, pursue a wholly new review. A little bit different than the statutory purpose behind the HSR merger laws. Um, and then finally, I'll mention that the FTC has resumed an older practice of issuing um, prior approvals, or pri including prior approval requirements in their consent agreements. And this means that the parties may be agreeing that they're going to go provide prior notice and get FTC clearance before closing future deals. And often this um, picks up non-HSR reportable transactions and gives the FTC some additional latitude that they don't have under the um, statutory HSR provisions. Um, so all of these inject additional levels of uncertainty. They're designed to give the FTC the ability to perform what they've called more comprehensive reviews. Um, and so I, th I think the implications of those are kind of clear. Yeah, it's a, it's a real challenge, I think, for emerging parties to plan for some of these issues uh, that, that you mentioned, Chris. Uh, you know, I think the prior approval one is really tricky. Um, and, and, you know, I'll note that this is, as you mentioned, not, an, not a brand new policy, but it has been dormant, if you will, for a very long time. And it essentially, you know, if you are emerging party, the FTC um, may require you to agree to prior approval for future deals as part of a consent decree to get your current deal done. Uh, and these can run 10 years and may mean you have to notify the FTC of every acquisition you make. Uh, and that would be outside, potentially outside of the HSR process. Um, so it, it's a real tax on future deals too, that if you are thinking about, you know, a roll-up, for example, you know, if you're a major system and, and you're planning a series of transactions, this is something to keep in mind that the FTC may insist on this uh, as a way to corral uh, or limit uh, mergers in the future. Um, and, you know, I think thus far, uh, at last count, this might not be 100% accurate, but I think there have been about seven or so prior, prior, prior approval requirements in this, in this latest round. But one of the really interesting ones is Hackensack uh, Englewood, which the parties abandoned the deal after the Third Circuit affirmed the preliminary injunction blocking the transaction. Uh, but the administrative trial uh, within the FTC is still ongoing. Um, the trial itself hasn't started, but the procedures are still there. <laughs> Uh, and I don't have any direct insight into this, but there is speculation uh, that perhaps the FTC is thinking about a prior approval requirement there. So even after litigating and losing and abandoning your deal, um, you may not be out of the woods. I don't know, Subu, if you had anything to add on this topic, I, it's, uh, it's a whole range of issues that, that could affect merger analysis. Yeah, no, I, I entirely agree with what you and, and Chris said, Pete. And you guys raised some excellent points. I think from our perspective as economists, you know, working with merging parties, I mean, it's 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 clear, it's, I'll 
I guess getting clearer and clearer that you know the earlier that you are able to get your arms around, here's what the information or here's the information that you would need in order to at least try and gauge the extent of concerns along of all of these issues. You know, given the expanded scope of the of these antitrust reviews, these merger investigations the sooner we are able to get our arms around, you know, can we at least rule out these concerns or can we, um, you know, arrive at a, think about, you know, shortcuts or a quick way for us to, you know, limit any potential areas of inquiry that the agencies may have, especially in these sort of non-traditional areas. I think that has become more and more, I think an important topic of discussion and area for us to focus on when we work with, um, with merging parties in the earlier stages of the investigation, because you certainly don't want to be in a situation where some of these come up when you are, you know, in the first 30 days or 60 days of your investigation. And then by then it's too late for you to do any substantive, you know, affirmative work or advocacy work that will help address any concerns, in which case, you know, it will then automatically or it will likely go into prolong, you know, second request investigation type phase. So the earlier we are able to invest, you know, resources, time, data into that to try and rule out some of these, or at least think through some of these issues. Um, I think uh, the more uh, effective it can be, all that said, I think there is still, like, like you both were saying, this layer of uncertainty, which does make it harder to prepare. Um, but, you know, um, I think the sooner we or the earlier in the process we get to preparing, I think just the better. In other words, call Subu early and often. <laughs> I think that's the advice. Um, so uh, last but not least, um, uh, one other topic uh, we were hoping to cover today is the new wave of antitrust legislation and, and how to think about that. Um, this is a moving target, to say the least. Um, and you know, we've heard about, um, and, and we heard about this during the conference uh, in Nashville, there was a push in Congress and in various states uh, to enact new antitrust laws. And a lot of what's been covered in the media is really focused on tech, but um, a lot of these bills have real implications for transactions across industries, including healthcare. Um, and just to flag one, there's a bill that's sponsored by Senator Klobuchar. Uh, it's, it appears to have some momentum, perhaps more than others, although that's always you know, a little bit of tea leaf reading. Um, it's called the Competition and, and Antitrust Law Enforcement Reform Act, um, which is a tongue twister, but um, it would amend the Clayton Act, the Sherman Act, and the FTC Act, um, among other things. It would make it easier to block mergers um, and prohibit uh, seemingly commonplace conduct like refusals to deal, tying, bundling, um, and exclusive dealing, uh, particularly with you know involving firms that have higher than fifty percent share. Um, I, you know the, the the concern I think. Uh, with a bill like this is that it could introduce quite a bit of uncertainty um, in antitrust analysis because 
with new and untested standards or revised standards, um, it will take time for courts to interpret them. And in the meantime, if your deal is pending, um, it may be harder to assess the risk of, of a challenge or ultimately whether your deal would be blocked. So, um, you know, that uncertainty in and of itself can, can act as a tax on, on transactions, um, you know, potentially with sellers demanding higher prices or other protections. Um, and uh, it, it does lower potentially if it, if it ultimately passes, you know, the threshold that, that private plaintiffs or the government would need to meet. So, um, it, you know, it's, it's just one example, I think, of where uh, Congress and, um, and the administration, the Biden administration, are, are going. Um, and, you know, it remains to be seen whether the, these bills will be passed. But if they are, uh, it could be a brave new world. And I think, Chris, you had some thoughts on the state law side. But, I, you know, I welcome any reactions on the, on the federal side, too. Yeah, let me just react very quickly, because I think you raise a really important policy issue, which is um, uncertainty, I think, can impose a form of over-enforcement. Um, and one thing that's really important to recall, I think, from a substantive economic and antitrust perspective, um, over-enforcement is just as bad for consumers as under-enforcement, and potentially worse, because it can show innovation. Um, so I just wanted to flag that. Um, much of what we're talking about has much broader policy implications, um, some of which is being discussed at both the federal and the state level. And here in New York, we had um, a proposed bill, the 21st Century Act, which passed our Senate, but not our assembly. Um, and of course, we just um, went into summer recess um, without it passing fully. But we expect that we'll be looking at this proposed legislation again come the fall. One of the really notable um, elements of the proposed legislation is a new statutory prohibition on abuse of dominance, which under this legislation could be demonstrated by the simple fact of using a non-compete provision or an exclusive provision. Um, so the use of restrictive covenants becomes an element that defines abuse of dominance. And the statute specifies that parties that are using these restrictive covenants should not have the opportunity to offer efficiency or other justifications. So we would be in a world where the use of restrictive covenants would be per se illegal, a criminal state violation. And that's really um, not any uh, approach that we've seen in any other state or at the federal level, I think anywhere outside of the EU perhaps. And I have heard that a number of other states are considering similar provisions, but they're waiting to see what happens in New York. So I think we do need to keep our eye on what's happening across the states. And in addition to some of the new substantive provisions, um, everywhere West Coast to East Coast, we're starting to see new pre-merger notification requirements. New York's 21st Century Act would have a pre-merger notification obligation for transactions at the $10 million threshold. So I'll let that just sit out there and percolate for a, million, for a minute. $10 million threshold. That's a lot of merger review for our state AGs. And, and one of the issues that that raises, by the way, is we're starting to see different pre-merger notification obligations. Um, Connecticut, Rhode Island, state of Washington, Oregon, 
Nevada all have their own unique pre-merger notifications. And that's gonna become a little bit of a beast to manage for outside counsel and for merging parties. So one thing that I'm hoping is that maybe the state AGs through the National Association of Attorney Generals will start to think about maybe a unified approach. Yeah, those are all really important points to, to raise. And that, that $10 million threshold is, I, you know, having talked to a few clients about that, that, that raised, a, raised a few eyebrows, I, I will say. Um, we'll see where it goes. Uh, Subu, any thoughts on the, the new legislation? Uh, no, nothing beyond, I think, Chris's you know, excellent points. It does seem striking to me some of the thresholds that are being discussed, um, just the cost of enforcement itself, you know, uh, both in terms of the actual, uh, you know, investigations themselves, but also I think like Chris pointed out, as economists, we worry about, you know, innovation impact and how that's gonna be impacted by levels of over enforcement. I think that's a real concern. And that's a cost to enforcement that really needs to be, you know, taken into account by policymakers. So, and I hope it is. Okay, well, I think we'll leave it at that. Uh, we are out of time. Um, I really want to thank Chris and Subu. This was excellent. Um, and, and I really appreciate the thoughtful discussion. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.